you're about to launch your new business. How can a lawyer help? Don't pretend you know something you don't know. It's fine to say to your attorney that you don't understand something, as opposed to with half the information going and getting themselves into a problem. How do entrepreneurs defend themselves? I mean, most of the time you'll see someone who's an entrepreneur, they just don't fit in at an IBM or a net insurance. They're very strong-willed people. And one thing they always have in common is just an absolutely relentless pursuit of what they want to get done. Your company is sued by a whistleblower. What do you do? Know your whistleblower. Is this someone who really believes in the company and is genuinely concerned that the company is engaged in activity that's going to hurt the company and therefore hurt them? Or is it someone who already sees that their tenure with the company is coming to an end and they're trying to figure out a way to game the system and maybe try to recover something on their way out? And the best way to work with your lawyer? Entrepreneurs usually aren't idiot savants. They tend to have a good, broad base of knowledge. Don't abdicate the role of legal to your counsel. Read those documents. This is The Language of Business, a weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller. Harvard MBA, and Senior Lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we look at the support entrepreneurs get from their lawyers. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. What do you get when you combine government relations, public policy, ethics, and entrepreneurship besides just a long LinkedIn profile? The answer might be someone like Emily Taylor, who counsels people with great business ideas, someone like you, on everything from company formation to raising capital. Emily, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Let's set the stage. Mm -hmm. You are sitting in your conference room. Somebody comes in with the greatest, latest business idea. And what do you think the first thing running through their head is? And more importantly, what's the first thing running through your head? So those are the most exciting meetings, right? That's the part of my job where I get to sit and listen to these amazing ideas that people come up with. They come up with them in the shower. They come up with them in their lab and in the universities. And they come and explain them to me. So that's the most exciting part by far. In their head, I think they're thinking 10 steps down the road. They're, and they're thinking they have the next Google or Microsoft. Right, right. right. And, and they're thinking, once I have the market share, you know, that's assumed. Once I have the market share, this is the next exciting thing I'm going to do. Or this is my liquidity event. I'm going to sell to Facebook for a billion dollars sure. in five years, which is understandable. The way I view my job is to roll them back a little bit and think about steps one and steps two and make sure we get those and steps And what right. would steps one or two look like? So steps one and two would probably be considering the idea and what's the valuable part of the idea. Is there intellectual property that should be protected? If so, are we protecting it adequately? What, what else do we need to do to do that? Do we have a company formed, an entity formed with limited liability protection? If not, then what type of entity should we form? Although it might sound trite, are you only focusing on the legal aspect of getting them up and running or how about the business aspect of it? So the business aspect certainly comes in at that stage as well and also sort of the financing aspect, right? Because everything they're talking about to make their business succeed, the type of client I'm working with, they're going to need to raise a lot of capital. So I need to be thinking from an investor's perspective, likely a venture capital firm or another institutional investor, what are they going to want to see to fund this? Because if it can't pass that first hurdle, then it can't they're get never going to get the steps the two or three, etc. Right. A lot of people can't start the business while they're working in their job and do it at nights. They have to take a leap of faith and do the initial planning stages and the market research on a little bit of a leap of faith on their own. 
Talk to us, please, about the changing laws in terms of preventing investors from getting scammed when mm -hmm. it comes to raising money. <laughs> we know about the blue sky laws, which are preventing unqualified investors, unsophisticated investors from losing their money. How does your counsel factor into that? Selling security, selling stock, in most cases, is a big part of what my clients need to do. The general premise that, that you have to educate them on is just that securities need to be registered with the SEC to and sell And what does them. that mean? So think of it as the initial public offer the IPOs you read about in the paper. It, it's a long process. It's not an application with the SEC. It, it's a long, detailed process of filing what's called an S-1 registration statement. Most companies don't want to do that. What they do, private companies try to find an exemption. And there are several detailed exemptions. The way I counsel my clients is, let's look at the general rules. There's always exceptions if you come with a very specific case we can talk about. But in general, you want to sell to accredited investors. Those, Which means what? Those can be individuals or entities. If it's an individual, you're looking for individuals that make at least $200,000 individually or 300000 combined with their spouse yep. in the last two years and a reasonable expectation that they'll make the same going forward or that have a net worth of at least a million dollars, excluding their home. And is that tangible net worth or is that actual net worth? So that would be actual net worth, excluding both their home and, and any debt they have in their home. So take that out of the equation. Perfect. How much do you rely on templates when you provide counsel to new entrepreneurs? Templates for documents are very important. Rely on them all the time. I think that most attorneys should because no clients want you starting from scratch, writing entire agreement sections and boilerplate. Legal advice, not so much. Legal advice tends to be more individualized. And a lot of times in a best case scenario, you take a template, you take a form, and then you get it 90% of the way there, and then you individualize it for the company based on the type of company. So based you're on using boilerplate type uh, legalese, but then you're customizing it to the individual entrepreneur. That's right. And that's one of the advances of the last you know, 10, 20 years that large firms can now spend a lot of time on these forms and continuously update them so that you can take them off the shelf rather than starting from scratch each time. What do you do, Emily, if you have an entrepreneur operating in what he or she might perceive as an actual or perceived crisis situation? Crisis situation are not that uncommon. You know, you have to gear your advice towards the specific sort of legal aspects of that situation. But for example, running out of cash is a crisis, and that's a crisis that a lot of startup companies face. And so you constantly counsel companies to be watching their cash flow, know when their out-of-cash date is, know when they're going to need to raise more money, because the closer you get to that line, the harder it's going to be to negotiate and raise money. But no matter how much you pay attention to that date and watch your, watch your burn rate and watch your cash flow, it can sneak up on you. And so if a, if a client comes to me and they are out of cash on Friday, one of the biggest things we focus them on is the employees. So a lot of founders don't understand that employee wages are, are a bit of the end-all, be-all. You, you have to pay your employee wages. If you can't, you actually lose the limited liability protection of your corporate form. You can be personally responsible for those. At that point, if you know you're out of cash, you need to be focusing both on turning the business to increase your cash, but also perhaps laying employees off or reducing salaries to minimum wage. If you had to boil it down to one or two key pieces of advice for entrepreneurs, what would they be? It's absolutely one. It's don't pretend you know something you don't know. It's perfectly fine to say to your attorney or to your banker to in any other profession that you don't understand something. And I find when I'm working with clients, it's a lot more useful if we have that conversation up front and I take five, maybe ten minutes to explain a concept, then they can go and run with it, as opposed to thinking they might understand what I was saying about selling to accredited investors, for instance, and then with half the information going and getting themselves into a problem. Thanks, Emily.
Emily Taylor on providing support to entrepreneurs and their nascent companies. What do you do when your company is sued by a whistleblower? But first, when a sudden crisis hits, how do entrepreneurs defend themselves? As the language of business continues, back to Greg. Thanks, Don. Our next guest has not only amassed a successful practice supporting entrepreneurs in the U.S., but also has an impressive international clientele. If your business or factories are in remote sections of the world, he's willing to get in a plane even if it takes him three days to arrive. Attorney Gene Barton is a partner at Pepper Hamilton. Gene, welcome to Language of Business. Hi, Greg. Where do you travel to that it takes you three days to get there? We do business all over the world now. We do business in sort of the three major business areas, the Americas, Europe, and the Pac Rim. For instance, I, I go to a place called Barra de Corda, Brazil. It's out on the Amazon, actually. So you have to fly all the way to Sao Paulo, and then you have to fly back north on a very small plane to a very small runway in a very small airport. How have you managed to create such an impressive and diverse client list over the years? Well, primarily, I go to places and, and deal with people who interest me. I mean, my practice is built around things that interest me. So I've been involved with various entrepreneurs who do business all over the world, and they tend to be involved in very interesting technologies and projects that take them globally. And what sorts of issues tend to be endemic to entrepreneurs? From my perspective, entrepreneurs are born, not bred. I mean, most of the time you'll see someone who's an entrepreneur, they just don't fit in at an IBM or a net insurance. They're very strong-willed people. They tend to make their own rules. Most of what I do is handle very strong-minded entrepreneurs. And one thing they always have in common is just an absolutely relentless pursuit of what they want to get done. And they frequently think they know everything about everything. Because they're very smart and they know a lot about something, they sometimes think they know a lot about everything. In my business, for example, they'll think they understand the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Basically, you can't bribe foreign officials. There's United States law that globally says American citizens cannot bribe people overseas. And they'll have some sort of way around this and they'll be convinced that they're right. And managing that and managing that sort of corralling their great intellect but making sure that they don't get themselves into too much trouble that's a lot of how i spend my time but how much of that is a business issue versus a legal issue i guess on the spectrum i might be the wrong person to ask because my practice is is 70 percent business and i tend to be someone who people rely on for advice that has a high business content some people are much more technical. They're into tax and ERISA, and, and they have sort of technical areas of expertise. I tend to be someone who spends a lot of my time talking to CEOs, CFOs about issues that they're not really able to talk to other people about. Why wouldn't he or she bring in a specialist in that area or management consultant and sign a confidentiality agreement? They would in some circumstances, and sometimes those are people that I compete with. I think it's because of my relationships. If it's a major strategic change for a big company, they're probably going to get strategic consulting help. But there are hundreds of little decisions. Just for example, let's say someone's facing a a race discrimination suit. They may want to get a feel for, is this a big problem? Is this something that we can deal with? I feel like we're being shook down. Should we stand up to this? How should we handle that? And the GC may want to talk to me about that to get an outside point of view before he makes a decision and even discusses it further internally. So your eyes really light up when you talk about the business side of things. If you had to go through it all again, would you have become a lawyer or would you have gotten a JD and an MBA together? I would love to have had the education of an MBA, but I wouldn't trade my job for any job in the world. I work with an incredibly diverse, interesting group of people. They're very successful. My role is very well defined. I feel like I add value every day. I mean, there are 24 hours where I might be 
coming home from Europe, having dinner with the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, meeting a wild-eyed entrepreneur who's selling his company for hundreds of millions of dollars, and that could all take place in a single day. So I know how you get your clients. How do you stay current on business trends as well as legal issues? Spend time with my clients. I think lawyers who sit in their office and, and read advance sheets may well become technical experts, but I think if you really spend time with your clients understanding what they're up to, where they're headed, and what's keeping them up at night, you can then go back and figure out the answers to the questions they have. And how do you do business in so many countries successfully internationally? Do you need local counsel? Do you then spend your late nights reading on the laws of Brazil? Or how do you keep current? That's a good question. We're a middle market law firm. We do not compete with the real big global powers, and, and we don't do deals that are measured in the billions of dollars. We do deals that are in the me- measured in the 50 and hundreds of millions of dollars. And as a result, we don't have the luxury of getting a super big law firm at super big rates that operates in every city. We've built a network of, of smaller firms that are very, very competent, very good at what they do, and very comparable to us. And so we, we have sort of select firms in every jurisdiction that we do business with. I would never attempt to try to master the laws of Brazil, for example. That would be folly. We have to have local people, and and, and these things need to get done right because there's tax implications and labor implications, and you can't afford to get it wrong. But you also can't afford to have really overpriced mega-firm rates. It won't work in the middle market. Thanks, Gene. Gene Barton, author and attorney, soon-to-be third-time author. Coming up, the best way for an entrepreneur to deal with a lawyer... But first, what do you do when your company is sued by a whistleblower? Next on The Language of Business. Our sponsor is Swap-Ons. Want to experience something truly unique on the other side of your phone? Swap-Ons. Personalize your phone case like never before. Pick your case model and color. Sleek design, anti-slip sides. Drop test protection? past and exceeded choose your swaps there are thousands of great designs sports travel nature and more or create your own swaps upload your pics or your business logo add custom frames swap ons they start an infinite swap for you live it love it swap it Swapons.com. you're listening to the language of business once again here's greg stoller thanks don We've all been passed over for promotions or laid off from jobs and then routinely complain to our confidants about it. Usually the response from your friends is, you're right, it stinks, but life isn't fair and now you just have to move on. 95% of the time that's sage advice, but what happens when in your heart you feel something just isn't right at work and the company is doing something truly wrong or even breaking the law? Let's thicken the plot. Say you've tried to bring it to someone's attention or even report it, but all to no avail. Finally, you take a deep breath and get an attorney or the government involved as a whistleblower. Enter Chris Robertson. Chris's job isn't to protect the people reporting these events, but rather the accused companies. Chris, welcome. Thank you. So what is the official definition of a whistleblower? Well, it's different depending on the context, but in general, a whistleblower is someone who, within a company, raises an issue about either unethical, illegal conduct, or some criminal activity going on within a company. And what does the whistleblower get out of it? So the whistleblower gets two things out of it, depending on what they're reporting on. They could file a claim with the government and actually become a potential recipient of a bounty with certain programs. For example, the Internal Revenue Service, if you report tax problems, if they recover tax, you can get part of that. Under False Claims Act cases, which False Claims Act is any company that's submitting false claims for payment to the government, 
federal and now there's state law as well, they can get a piece of whatever's recovered from the company by the federal or state government. And how much of the case that the whistleblower is pursuing is based on upholding the truth or is it only about the money? It depends. And what we always say when we go into a company, either before a whistleblower issue has risen or after, is, quote, know your whistleblower. Is this someone who really believes in the company and is genuinely concerned that the company is engaged in activity that's going to hurt the company and therefore hurt them? Or is it someone who already sees that their tenure with the company is coming to an end and they're trying to figure out a way to game the system and maybe try to recover something on their way out? So is it fair to say that whistleblowers come from varied backgrounds and there's no one-size-fits-all? Very much so. And it depends on, for example, if it's an accounting issue company's been cooking its books, for lack of a better term, for months or years. That might only involve someone very senior, the CFO, the controller, someone high up in accounting. But on an issue, and your last guest mentioned Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is bribing a foreign official. Well, anyone in a company could know that a bribe's occurred. And so you could have someone at a very low level in the company reporting a bribe and potentially being a whistleblower and recovering under that. So a lot of it depends on what they're reporting on as to where in the company they might be. And where do you folks come into the process? We'll come into the process when the whistleblower has first raised an issue. And what we try to understand immediately is, have they already gone to the government, or is it still internal? And if it's internal, then what we try and do is help the company navigate the investigation. You have to deal with the whistleblower, but you also want to investigate their claim and do it in a way that the end product you have is, quote, usable for purposes of going to the government or for purposes of defending yourself if there's a later claim. So what you're saying is some of these could be worked out even without a suit being filed, that the whistleblower feels like he or she is getting just representation and you come to some agreement, but you don't necessarily have to get the government involved. Or, or depending on the know your whistleblower, it may be that the whistleblower just wants it to be investigated and some disciplinary action taken internally as to that manager or as to that person. So oftentimes we get involved... The government's never involved, there's never litigation, and there's never a lawsuit. We just help the company navigate it so that the whistleblower's concerns are addressed, the company implements whatever discipline needs to be implemented and moves on. Where do you then draw the line between a harassment claim versus a whistleblower claim? So the way the law is structured in any of these whistleblower statutes is you can't retaliate. The word is retaliate. And retaliate from the company's perspective. From the company's right. perspective. First, there has to be an adverse employment decision, either a demotion, a termination, obviously, of employment, or conditions for the employee that make it intolerable so that they feel like they can't remain at the company any longer. Those are really what has to happen. And then they have to connect that to their whistleblowing activity. They actually have to connect it somehow that a component of why they were treated the way they were was because they went and raised these issues. Let's talk about training. What recommendations, steps do you provide for new entrepreneurs who are setting up a business for the first time to be weary of potential either harassment claims or whistleblower claims? So the first thing any entrepreneur, any company owner should have is they should have a code of conduct. And they should have a policy in place for what is, will or won't be tolerated within the organization and within that a means to report it. Now, if you're small, you don't have to have some big fancy whistleblower hotline, but you have to have somebody designated at the company that employees can take their concerns to that they trust and they believe they can go to. 
The problem we see is the, the employee doesn't feel empowered to go internally because they don't feel there's anyone they can talk to where they won't be harassed or mistreated. And so that's paramount. Even if you just have a handful of employees and you're just starting out, start having those policies and procedures early so that they just build on that, and there's always a place to go if you have a concern. How about if you're an existing company that has already been in business for two or three years? Then it gets more nuanced, it gets more sophisticated. Oftentimes you'll have a mechanism for it, but you may want to develop, as you get bigger, the capacity for someone to report something anonymously, and that's when you might hire an outside service to actually act as a whistleblower That would be the whistleblower hotline that you're referring to, Correct. And all public companies, and we're talking entrepreneurs, so often not public, but all public companies have to have that. And so the question is just when is the right time to implement that? And as you prepare yourself to grow and hopefully become public and become the next Facebook or Apple or whatever, you want to start implementing these things so that you don't have to do them at the last minute. Chris Robertson on protecting yourself and your company from whistleblower lawsuit. Coming up on The Language of Business, the best way for an entrepreneur to deal with a lawyer. One more time, here's Greg. Thanks, Don. He was ranked as one of the 50 most important people shaping technology by Time Magazine and even began an advisory company bearing his own name. Internationally recognized for financial services, technology, marketing, and e-commerce expertise, Julio Gomez is a trusted advisor to business leaders. Julio, welcome to Language of Business. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Greg. So when I mention the words entrepreneur, startup, and attorney, what's the first thought that comes to mind? I guess partnership. There are very few success stories in business that uh, weren't a result of a team effort. And entrepreneurs, as much as the strength of their ideas, what's important is their strength in building a good team. And so uh, entrepreneurs need to be able to spot good talent, bring them in where appropriate, and good counsel is an important part of that. And how have you used attorneys over the years? In a variety of ways and at different stages. So the spectrum, I guess, is from basically virtual attorneys uh, when I, in a recent uh, startup that I did where I incorporated myself, right, to actually using attorneys for that purpose of forming the company when it was important to take into account certain things like corporate structure, tax considerations, you know, beginning with the end in mind, knowing where we were going to take the company, make sure that the company was structured properly to get there. And then, of course, over the normal course of business, I mean, I've had in-house counsel that was very successful to have as part of the key management team particularly as we were expanding globally, when we were making acquisitions, as we're developing intellectual property that we want to protect, having a good attorney at your right hand is a critical factor. What one or two single pieces of advice would you give to entrepreneurs in terms of how to best use their own legal counsel? Best use your own legal counsel? Well, there are a couple of things that entrepreneurs need to be aware of, and I think generally they are, which is that entrepreneurs usually aren't idiot savants. They tend to have a good, broad base of knowledge. I guess my counsel to them would be, don't abdicate the role of legal to your counsel. Still stay involved. Don't treat it as a black box. Don't treat it as a black box. Read those documents. You know, you're smart enough to get a good sense of it and actually work with your counsel and actually be of help to your counsel by by reading up on some of the, the things that are going across his desk. Would you recommend, if you had to go through it all again, having in-house counsel or outsourcing that to an attorney's network or a firm with a large bench? Well, that really depends. That I've done both. Um, I guess if your pace of change in your corporate development is rapid, I think to the it's, that's directly that pace of change is directly proportional to the appropriateness of having in-house counsel. 
So let's talk about your career and your move from starting your own company to now working for another. You know, entrepreneurs generally are driven by a sense of mission. But I guess not every inspiring mission has to come out of my own head. I guess what I really did was find something that was incredibly captivating. Tivio is a company that's a hot company in a hot space with a bunch of really talented people addressing some major problems, which is how do we take all these mountains of data that sit in silos that are of a variety of types, structured data and databases, unstructured data, everyone's talking about big data as though it's all about Hadoop and log files, but really that's only one piece of the big data pie, and then really 80% of it, which is unstructured content, all of the text, all the documents, and correlating across all those different types to drive new insights, that's really the promise of big data. And when I saw what Ativia was doing, I said, this is disruptive technology that the customers and companies that I've worked with over the years have been craving. I want to be a part of it. The big trend has been digital. I know, the sad, I know the benefit that I get and the value that I place in going to a place like Amazon.com and having them kind of know me. You're Knowing start your preferences, your past order history. Saving me time that way. Right. right? And making the interaction much more rich and valuable. And that's something that we're going to see more and more of going forward. Excellent. Thanks, Julio. Julio Gomez, experienced data and industry analyst. And, of course, entrepreneur. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. In 2019, we'll have some great new content coming up on the language of business. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Thank you. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening to The Language of Business.